Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on Mike and Yano, the founders of BlockWorks, one of the largest and most successful media companies in crypto. And Mike and Yano have built it over the past, I believe, four or five years, I think. Their lesson on how they built it and how they've iterated on it is very valuable for other founders building any kind of crypto business. And we'll also go into crypto media and more broadly. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast are founders and operators who are dealing with the media in a variety of ways. And it's really important just to understand how to engage with the media, what their incentives are, and tips and tricks for founders that may not necessarily have as much experience. So really interested and excited to chat with these two today, along with Larry. I've learned a lot from them and hope listeners are able to find it interesting as well. So without further ado, welcome, Michael and Jason. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. I must say, I think Mike and I have listened to every single episode of I Pledge Allegiance. So it's fun to be on the other end of this. That is great. And that's a big compliment. So I appreciate it. And for the listeners, Yano and Jason, it's the same person. It's interchangeable. We may get a little bit confused. So if you hear us say Yano, we're referring to Jason. Yano is the nickname that Jason gave himself that he asked everyone to call him for the listeners who are tuning in. You know what happened? My last name is Yano. It's but I was on too many calls with banks where I would say Jason, I guess I don't enunciate well enough. So they kept hearing Chase, Chase. <laughs> so I got too fed up and just went with Yano. Easier to deal with. <laughs> Origin stories here. Chase Yanowitz, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> exactly. So, no, good to be here, guys. Yeah, I think most listeners are familiar with BlockWorks and have engaged with your work, research, or events in some way. But I think just to simplify, how would you describe BlockWorks today? What are the different things you guys do in media, either Michael or Yano? Today, we're one of the largest crypto media and information platforms. So we have the largest network of podcasts in the industry. We have 10 or 11 podcasts that we run. We have two different conference brands, so Permissionless and Digital Asset Summit. We have a couple of newsletters. We have a big research platform that we're building data and governance in, which we can talk about later. We have a whole news and editorial team, 50-person company today. And so that's what we look like today. Like you guys were mentioning earlier, definitely the, the early stories are fun to look back at, but that's what we are today. I don't know if you'd add anything to that, Mike. One of the things that isn't super obvious looking at BlockWorks today that we did opposite from everyone else, based not on strategy at all, was most media companies, you can kind of think of the business model as you build an audience, and then you find different ways to monetize that audience. So the only way that I would slightly describe a little bit differently what Jason just said is we've got this built-in audience that subscribes to BlockWorks information and content in multiple different ways. You've kind of got people who consume our news. Then you've got people who consume our podcasts and people who attend our events. You can think of that one big plugged in audience out there, and then a portfolio of different media assets that monetize it. One of my favorite things to get into is hearing the founding stories, because I think a lot of people see BlockWorks and they're like, wow, this is a huge media empire. And it wasn't always that way. And you guys started fairly recently in the grand scheme of things. So Mike or Yano, I don't know who wants to take this, but give us a little bit of the background story and how you guys first met. And then how'd you decide to start BlockWorks and what it was initially? Mike, I think I dragged you into this one. So BlockWorks is entirely your fault. You want to take the owners? (laughs) So Jason and I know each other. We're friends from college. And we did the classic move to New York thing. And we were living together along with 
couple other guys. We were packed into the New York apartment like sardines. And I think the founding story is, frankly, like many other people in this space. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast can probably relate to, which is we are a class of 2017 entrants. We, for whatever reason, were just the two people in our friend group who were that much more interested in crypto and took it more seriously than the rest of our friend group who maybe tossed a thousand bucks into Ripple or Litecoin or whatever the investment du jour of the time was. And it really started with listening to podcasts at the beginning of the day. We didn't get plugged into Twitter for a long period of time. I remember very clearly one night where Jason and I just sat down, we brought in takeout food and we played a podcast on speaker in front of us. And we would just pause every five minutes and say, do you get that? Do you understand that? <laughs> no, absolutely not. But we'd talk it over. Jason was the one who first started going to events, actually. So he took it one step further for me and started going around to these events in New York. The genesis of BlockWorks actually happened when, Jason, you went to, it was called Block Talks at the time or something like that? Yeah, it was Amanda Gutterman speaking about Ethereum. And she talked about Ethereum. And then you also listened to someone else talk about the benefits of starting your own side hustle. And you kind of put those two ideas and it came to me, I remember. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> this was like a random Sunday with zero pretext at all. Jason was like, so I think we should start a crypto consulting company because I have a background in consulting. I was like, that sounds like a very bad idea. <laughs> a very bad idea because basically, in my opinion, what you're selling in consulting is the brand. That's the thing that's very difficult to build up in a consulting type business. But I think that was the time when both of us first started to say, hey, maybe we should start thinking about doing something in this space more full-time. Because we've been going to events and we kind of had this network of people. So the light bulb moment, actually, the first big event that we actually paid to go to, 200 bucks or something was the ticket price. We actually listened to none other than Alex Mashinsky. That was the first person that we ever heard talk to a stage full of people in crypto. True story. And I remember both of us were sitting in the audience just upset. Because we're like, you know, we paid money to get into this event. We've got this guy talking on stage that maybe knew some stuff, or maybe he sounded a little bit jarring to us. But that was the light bulb moment where we were like, you know what? There are 250 other people in this event, and they all paid $200 too. I bet you could actually make a little bit of money and build a reputation in this space by hosting these things. And I bet we could do it better. We literally went back from that event, got a whiteboard, wrote down we need things X, Y, and Z to host our own one of these. Two months later, we hosted our first event. I think there's also another element of this. We've gotten so much wrong at BlockWorks. Like any other company, we've made so many mistakes. But I think we got the early thesis of the business really right, which was that crypto would eventually grow to become this huge institutional asset class. And that the number of people and really the number of investors who would come into the industry would grow by multiple orders of magnitude, and that those investors were going to need a better source of information. So while I don't even think we realized this back then, what we were doing was building different pockets of information for those investors who were coming into crypto, like Mike said, so we started with events. And then naturally, the next thing that we went into was podcasts. And why did we go into podcasts? Well, because like Mike mentioned, we would literally at night, put a podcast in front of us, play five minutes of it, pause it, look at each other, ask if we understood the episode, say no, Google it, figure it out, and then go back to listening to the podcast. And so for us, on our proverbial information journey into crypto, we found different buckets of information like events and conferences and newsletters. And we thought that we could do it better, I think, than other folks were doing it. And so that's what we did. That's an awesome story. I'm going off memory here. And if anyone else here knows the story, just please correct me. But 
if I remember right, so Sheldon Adelson, the hotelier, or at least that's how most people know him now. I think he first made a big chunk of his money, actually, as a non-tech guy creating conferences. And I think this was in the 70s. I'm just looking at Wikipedia now. He developed Comdex, which is a pretty large trade show for the computer industry, which is funny because he was not really a tech guy, at least as far as I understand. So it's just always fun to hear people following their passion, seeing where there's a business opportunity and seizing it. Sometimes they're so obvious and a lot of people just don't go after it. And you guys did to your credit. Thanks. Like Jason said, I think the one thing that we got really right moving into it was this idea that eventually the media landscape around crypto is going to have to professionalize. And at the time, we just heard this over and over was there's no way for institutions, or let's just call it a more professional class of investor to consume information about this space. I think many of you who are probably listening, I mean, we take it for granted that some of the best sources of knowledge in this space are these Anon accounts on Twitter. But the reality is that if you work at a bank or a big hedge fund, you can't put that information in front of your board as part of an investment decision. I mean, you need something that looks and feels and is sourced more professionally. And people just told us that that's what the space needed. And we went and figured it out piece by piece. And the thing that we did a little bit backwards from others who have built media companies in the past is typically what most media companies do is you raise a little bit of money, you hire some reporters or people that are going to produce content, you start to build the audience, and then you monetize it. And what Jason and I did that was a little bit different, because frankly, we didn't know any better when we were doing it, was we started with the monetization, actually. So conferences aren't necessarily a way to build audience or community. They're typically a way that you monetize that community. But we started with that. We have like a slightly different ethos than many others in the crypto community, which is we've never raised outside capital. We're bootstrapped. So it's always been top of mind for us to make sure that we're generating cash flow and income, which has, I think, served us super well. And we can talk about bull market versus bear market lessons of what it's like to build in those two different environments. But I think especially now, it's probably relevant for some founders out there. Super interesting. So you guys started with community and events and just thinking there was a lot of room for improvement overall. Sounds like it went well early on. And what did it look like after that? How did you guys land and expand into research, newsletters, podcasts? There's so much in between. I would love to hear how some of those other areas came about. I don't know if Mike would agree with me on this. I would almost bucket BlockWorks into three time periods. And the first period of BlockWorks was really doing anything to make money, essentially. And we just had these conferences. And then we also had this outsourced network of podcasts. That was like phase one of the business. We built shows with a bunch of folks. We had a show called What Grinds My Gears with Meltem and Jill, Meltem Demirs and Jill Carlson. We even did a show with Selkis at Masari. We had these early podcasts and those helped us fund the business and made it so that we didn't have to take this outside capital. And actually, I think it was Larry who mentioned Sheldon Adelson. He has this quote about building conferences that I think he nailed, which is a conference is basically just building a marketplace, standing up a marketplace in three days and shutting it down three days later. We identified this need. There were two needs in the market. It was not just investors needed better information about crypto. It was that those investors needed to understand what were the right solutions. Okay, cool. I've made the decision to allocate capital into crypto. 
who's my custodian? What's my trading platform going to be? And on the other end of this, there were companies that wanted to reach those investors. And so that's how we started making money in the early days was connecting those folks through the conferences, through things like podcast sponsorships. So that was like phase one of the business. Phase two of the business, I would say, was the second push. In January 2021, COVID wiped away like 80% of our revenue from the in-person events. We pivoted and launched Blockworks Media, which was January 2021, launched a new website. And we can talk about that whole process if it's interesting. And then we also started bringing the podcast in-house. So instead of building shows for Selkis and for Meltem and other folks, we started building Blockworks shows like Empire and On the Margin. And now we're pushing into the third phase of Blockworks, which is we're building the research data and governance side of things too. I would also say that almost every single one of those phases was actually precipitated by a crisis. The easiest one for me to remember back to was March of 2020. And that was when COVID was starting to happen. And if you think about the Venn diagram of companies that are impacted by COVID, BlockWorks had to be at the very bullseye center of that group because we had a conference business, which that was 65% of our revenue back at that point, which was overnight kaput. Not only could we not host the conferences and our revenue was gone, but we also have accepted money from sponsors in advance for the big flagship conference that was a month away or something like that. And we're also in crypto. And even though it wound up that that was the absolute bottom, we were about to go on a massive bull run. We didn't know that at the time. Bitcoin crashed to like 4,500 or whatever it crashed during March. And it made Jason and I really look at our business and be like, what are we building here? We've got something good on the event side of things, but we can't host events for God only knows how long. We need to do this thing that we think we've known we need to do for a long time, which is build the media business. So I think most of the step function changes in BlockWorks have actually been precipitated by these, if not crises, definitely adversity, I would say. I'd love to double click into phase one, which is podcasts, and in particular conferences, because we've all been to conferences. I'm sure listeners have been to many. In my experience, people who first have to put up a conference, and we've done this at DCG, I remember in 2018, we put up a conference for our portfolio companies. A lot of people seem to think before they do it, it's like, oh, hey, we just put a bunch of smart people in the room, they're going to buy tickets, and it's going to be a great thing. But then they actually do it. Turns out it's really damn hard to actually run a conference, market a conference, and create a business out of it. Could you guys walk us through what was that first conference like and what is the conference business? Maybe unpack it a little bit for us and for listeners. The early days were not conferences. They were 6 to 10 p.m. happy hours after work. And Mike and I had day jobs too. So we would wake up at like 4 a.m. or 4.30 or whatever. Mike would make me coffee and drag me out of bed or vice versa. And we would get on LinkedIn and we would max out the LinkedIn invitations. And every single morning, I mean, we had no audience. Most media companies have an audience and then they use that audience to sell conference tickets. We would just wake up before work every day, get on LinkedIn. And I think we probably sent tens of thousands of LinkedIn messages. And to that first event in February of 2018, we got, I think it was like 200 or 220 people there. To this day, sometimes, Someone that I'm connected to and know now will message me on LinkedIn, and I will see that the last message that I sent them before that was a LinkedIn DM. I get that all the time. In 2018, being like, please come to my Crypt Talks event. That was the name of it. It was fun. We got Netflix to come there because this was right after the 2017, two months after the hype. Mike got his company that he was currently employed at to sponsor the event for 1500 bucks. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan, for listening to this. 
we sold tickets for 50 bucks and discounted them to 25. And so that was the first event. Second event was May of 2018, New York Blockchain Week. You got to remember media and crypto back then. There were two media companies, but there was really one. There was Coindesk and Cointelegraph. That was it. And Coindesk was like the 800-pound gorilla. And 2018 was interesting because that was the year BlockWorks launched, Decrypt launched, Masari launched, The Block launched, all these new media companies. And we were all gunning for one company, which was Coindesk. They were like the 800-pound gorilla. So getting back to the events, we had our May event, and then Mike and I both quit our jobs. And then the event that we did after that was not profitable. And we were like, oh my God, what a bad decision. What did we just do? It was the only one we've ever lost money on in BlockWorks history. It was that second event two weeks after we both quit our jobs. We have no money. And then we made like a bet the farm decision, which was in May of 2019, there was New York Blockchain Week again. And we made this decision. We had hosted seven different 6 to 10 p.m. events. And we made this decision that we were going to scrap the 6 to 10 p.m. events bet the entire company on doing this big conference during New York Blockchain Week, go head to head with consensus. We even overlap one day, which for this three person media company was such a scary thing to do. I mean, if that event didn't work, there'd be no BlockWorks, but thankfully it did. To even put some numbers around that, Larry, this will tie into what are your principles for designing an events business. But we brought in this woman who is, she was an early hire and she's now our COO, Julie Miroff, who is just amazing. And as part of her first week, she was like, all right, we're going to do a budget for this new big event that you want to do. And she showed me this number that was two times what we had done in revenue for the entire year, top line revenue. That was going to be the budget for this event. And every fiber of my being wanted to say, we can't afford this, but we had just bought on this person. She was way too qualified to be joining what Jason and I had at the time. And I was simply too afraid to tell her that we couldn't afford it. So I said, all right, let's do it. It was a bet the farm event. And it really ended up working out for us. It was actually transformative for our business. But that gets in like one of the big things that we learned about for when it comes to events is bigger is better, frankly, at least from an economic standpoint. There are huge economies of scale when it comes to the conference business. The best way I could kind of describe is you sort of split revenue in between sponsorships and tickets for events. But let's say you have a big customer and they're going to spend $1 million on your big event. If you do another event, they're not going to spend $2 million on that event. They're going to spend $500,000 on the first event and $500,000 on the second event. But you are doing twice the work. So that's a guiding North Star for us in terms of scaling conferences. The other thing is, if you can be a category winner in one specific space, that's enormous. Part of the reason you see a billion different events crop up when there are bull markets in crypto is because people start being a little bit less discriminatory about what they're spending on. But now everyone's tightened up their budgets and they're going to say, okay, I only want to be in front of leaders in DeFi. I really care about the ETH developer community or it's the opposite. I need to sell into big institutional budgets. So they're only going to pick category winners across those three. So if you're an events organizer, being large category winners and specific is really, really important. Because if you think about this from the standpoint of a sponsor, let's say you are a company like Fireblocks and who you want coming onto your platform are banks or hedge funds or basically people that have a large amount of crypto that needs to be managed in some way, shape, or form. You only want to be paying to get in front of and talk to customers that are relevant to you. A room full of 500 of the right people can sometimes be much more valuable than 10,000 random people who would never buy your product. So the more specific you can make your event and your brand, the more valuable it's going to be. I totally agree with that. And as a customer of these events, 
And I'm sure everyone listening has gone to an event where the crowd doesn't feel right. It feels a little shady or the sophistication is just not there. And can you guys talk a little about how do you make sure the crowd and the vibe is right for an event? Because obviously the risk is you get the wrong audience and sponsors are not happy and potentially sophisticated goers are not happy. How do you think about stuff like that? I can tell you how I think about it. But Jason, you might think about it in a slightly different way than me. One of the little tricks that we've figured out is, let's say you want to get an audience of market makers. Let's say you want market makers to be reading your stuff. The best, easiest way to do that is to write about other market makers. Just as like an overly reductive example there. Everyone loves industry in gossip and what your competitors are doing, etc. So a big lesson for us early on was that we kind of did all these polls. Remember, you know, we see these like exhaustive polls. Why did you come to this event? And we had this thought that it was, oh, to hear the speakers. But nowadays, most of the speakers that are talking at events are on podcasts that you could consume for free at any given time. And really, it was about networking. But the big thing that speakers do for a conference is it's a signal for the quality of the conference. And the type of speakers roughly that are on stage, that will roughly mimic what the audience makeup ends up looking like. To use a very overly reductive example, if you are hosting a crypto conference and you put a bunch of protocol founders on stage, you're going to attract their peers because it's their audience that they're going to bring to the conference. If you put a bunch of TradFi fund managers on stage, that's roughly who you're going to bring. That sounds so simple to say, but you just have to be extremely thoughtful about the speakers that you're putting up there and what the makeup looks like. And I think about this from a content lens because that's what I'm more responsible for, but that's going to roughly dictate who you have in the crowd. I would also just say when there's an oversupply of anything in a market, quality matters more than anything. And when there's an undersupply of something in the market, being first or like loudest usually matters more, usually just being first, I would say. But applying this to conferences, when we started doing them, there's this drastic oversupply of conferences in the market because the conference market lags prices by like six to 12 months. So for example, if there's a bull market like there was in 2017, the most amount of conferences in crypto are not going to be in 2017. They're actually going to be in 2018. For us, there was like this severe oversupply of conferences. So the only way to compete was by quality. So when all the other conferences were being hosted at the Marriott and like at different hotels, we hosted ours at Cipriani, even though that really hurt the margins. Or like when other conferences, basically every panel was like a sponsored panel. We barely did any sponsorships on panels, even though that hurt the margin because long-term it helped the brand. So that's another, I guess, theory that we have. So we heard there was a fun Fred Wilson story from the early days. Is that something you'd be able to go a bit more into? Yes. I want to caveat this by saying there's a very different time in BlockWorks history. And I hope if you're a founder out there listening, it's kind of a reminder of things get very scrappy in the beginning. And I think if there's one lesson from BlockWorks, it's you really do create your own luck. And I'm pretty sure that's a Fred Wilson phrase. But at the time, just to set the scene, this was May or June of 2018. This was in between when we hosted that event that lost us money right after we quit our jobs. And this was before we figured out that we needed to transition to larger events. To set the scene, Jason and I had both just quit our jobs, which not a lot of people thought was a good idea at the time, to put it mildly. And on the first event that we did, we lost money. 
So we were like, okay, no pressure. But this second one really needs to make money. We went and found this venue in Manhattan that was great. This was me at the time. And I went and I saw the venue. I said, wow, this is amazing. Can we rent this space? She was like, yep, it's available. We shook hands. In my mind at that time, that meant we're good. We are good for the venue. We start to invite all these people. This was like a big change from the last event that we did. We got way more people. We were charging way more for tickets. We had great speakers, actually from like Genesis and Block Tower. And about three weeks away from the event, I called the woman to check in and say, hey, are we all good for that conference? I never got a contract from you. She's like, I didn't know that you wanted to move forward. I never got a receiving contract. Duh. I was like, oh my God, we do not have a conference for this venue. So Jason and I, emergency brainstorm. If you've ever tried to host an event in New York, you know three weeks is an impossible time frame to secure a venue. Absolutely impossible. Jason and I like, okay, no bad ideas here. Let's just brainstorm. What can we possibly do? And I don't know why USV cropped up. We had just heard about them hosting an event for their portfolio companies. We were living in Flatiron at the time, two blocks away from... Union Square Ventures office. I don't even remember. Do you remember why we thought about this? I read Fred Wilson's newsletter every day. And we were <laughs> two blocks away from their office. And I was like, that sounds like as good of an idea as any. We're three weeks out. <laughs> yep. Let's just give it a try. So we literally marched down two blocks to their office, said, hey, do you have a meeting? We said, yep. Yeah, we got a meeting. I said, okay, head on up. We walked into the office, said, hey, we would like to have a meeting. We'd like to talk to someone about hosting an event in this space. No, we said we'd like to talk to Fred Wilson. We said, <laughs> we have a meeting with Fred Wilson. Not even realizing like how VC worked and that was just absurd. We basically got a very polite no thank you, which if you're listening, you probably know it could have gone very different ways. To USV's credit, they were actually extremely gracious about this whole situation. And they ended up connecting us. We've had speakers at USV at multiple of our conferences before that actually came from this meeting. But that was just a very early days scrappy story where we didn't know better. And we marched into a situation that to USV's credit, they had a lot of grace about it and didn't ask why we stretched the truth about having a meeting in that office. Love to hear the hustle. And I think it resonates with us and I'm sure it resonates to a lot of the listeners who are founders as well. I think one overarching thread I'm hearing so far is the lack of fundraising you guys didn't raise a formal round early on. You didn't have outside investors that were VCs early on. It sounds like that, in this case, might have been a good thing because it allowed you to be a bit more flexible. It allowed you to bootstrap a bit more. Maybe just talk a bit about the decision to not fundraise and how that affects media businesses if they do decide to raise capital. I think it makes sense for media businesses to raise capital if and only if they have basically their own product at the bottom of the media funnel that they can monetize. Examples of that might be Politico and a Politico Pro, more like a Bloomberg and they sell the terminal, those type of business models. There's a long history of media companies raising money at the very beginning to go build this general audience, I would say, and it ending really terribly. So Facebook created in 2004, then there's a whole swath of media businesses that raised a bunch of money hundreds of millions in the late 2000s, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, built to build on the back of social networks, basically. And basically for nine out of 10 of those, it ended terribly. So I think for us, it's really important. We just didn't want to fall into that trap that a lot of other media companies did. So we made a pretty conscious decision not to raise capital. I don't know, Mike, if you would add anything to that, but... I think it really depends on the business model. I think 
when it comes to media, I'm a pretty big believer in not necessarily raising capital because building an audience and VC money, I do not think mix. To use a bit of a phrase, I think building an audience is like women can't make a baby in a month type of thing. You can't force it to go faster. Trust naturally when it comes to humans takes a lot of time to build. And that's what you're doing with a media brand. You're building trust in a group of people over a period of time. And it doesn't matter how many marketing dollars or whatever you throw at it. It just takes a certain amount of time in a human's brain for that trust to sink in. So while I think it was appropriate for us not to raise money, I think you as a founder, it's very difficult in the early days. You're like, I don't know what my model is going to be. I know this is the problem and I have a rough idea of my customers. But I think basically the decision to raise depends on the model that you ultimately end up going with. But I do think in the early days, a lot of founders would probably do, I don't know, I can't say that we would do it any differently if I went back. But a lot of the times, these expenses that seem really big and insurmountable in the very early days of a business, you might be able to grit your teeth and find cheap solutions around instead of necessarily raising capital from investors before you're ready. Because there's a phrase about this, once someone is on the cap table, it's like a marriage, it's really difficult to extricate them. And I think, Jason, one of the things that you and I got the most right, or frankly, the luckiest, is we worked as co-founders, and we've been pretty good at coming to consensus very quickly. And I think we've got lucky about that, but we've also maybe taken a little bit for granted. I think it would definitely be good for co-founders to like really consider, do I need this money? Or would it really just be nice and reduce the stress? But could I do this MVP for less money than I think. And that way, I won't have to raise capital now. And I can increase my optionality for later. I think that is maybe something that people don't ask themselves enough at an early stage of a business. So far, we chatted a lot about the history of BlockWorks, what you thought about the competitive environment for conferences and podcasts at the time, how you built the business in the multiple phases, and a lot of really interesting things. Now seems like a good time to talk about what you guys think of the competitive environment for media businesses today, particularly crypto media businesses. And maybe one thing I'll add to the listeners may have not met you guys before is I've always been impressed with how strategic you guys are. From the first time we met, it was clear that you look at the environment and the competitive landscape in a very rigorous way. And you look at your weaknesses and competitors' strengths and vice versa to really understand where to go next. So maybe it'd be awesome to hear about how you guys view the landscape today and where you think it's headed over the next few years. I can maybe take the lead here, Jason, and then you hop in to correct me. But I think about this as crypto media sort of happened in three phases, I think. Jason sort of alluded to this, but there was a period of time, 2014 to 2017, 2018, where really the two games in town were Coindesk and Cointelegraph. And then there was this long tail of crypto media sites that got, I don't know, 50 or 100,000 page views and ultimately ended up either going bust or consolidating or whatever. And that was during the very retail grassroots period of time in crypto. There really wasn't any institutional involvement whatsoever. Then I think there was sort of a phase two of crypto media, which was the arrival of Blockworks and The Block and Decrypt and some of the other media sites. And I think the next wave was a professionalization of crypto media. And to be honest, I'm a little biased, but I think that crypto media actually does, by and large, a pretty good job. And I think you could 
contrast that with how the mainstream media has covered Alameda, Sam Bankman-Fried, and FTX versus the, I think, solid job that crypto media has done, frankly. And I think the difference there is it was a little bit more professional. You actually got good journalism practice, citing multiple sources, different points of view. You successfully recruited talent from the Wall Street Journals and Bloomberg's, et cetera. And I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about our competitors as well. I think everyone does a good job. I think the one thing that has been missing from this phase, and you're starting to see the beginnings of it, but there hasn't really been thus far a market for researcher data. I know there are examples of that existing out there, but it hasn't been large thus far. I think what's going to happen moving forward from here is I think there's going to continue to be consolidation on the media side of things. I basically think there are room for maybe three, maybe four brands to actually be really blue chip in our space from a media side of things. So I think I see more consolidation purely on the media side of things. And then I think there's going to be more emphasis on the subscription part of media businesses. So a market for research and a market for data. And I think the media companies that survive are going to have to figure out that component where previously there hasn't really been a market for that yet. I think right now we're sort of in that transition phase from phase two to phase three, Larry. I'm a little bit biased because I'm in the thick of it. But overall, I think for sort of trade media, which is how you describe a lot of the publications in crypto today, I think they do a good job. If you read most articles, I mean, they're well-sourced. I think they do a good job of not getting super swept away by the narrative and trying to insist on facts. And I think they get it broadly pretty right. Larry, I think the other way I would maybe paint this picture of what's about to happen in crypto media is BlockWorks today sits at the center of information in crypto. We have conferences that have become these industry hubs. We have journalists that break news that moves the markets. Podcasts have become crypto's most important media channel. We own that medium. We have hundreds of thousands of people who read our newsletters. We have half a million followers on social. We have this big community. That all means that we sit at the center of information. The next phase of BlockWorks is moving from sitting at the center of information to sitting at the center of investment decisions on the research side of things. And that's what Mike is kind of alluding to. And we've been talking about with this platform that we launched six months ago, we built over much longer than that. It brings three pillars together, which is deep, deep, deep research on DeFi, including protocol specific analysis, industry trends, then data, and then also governance, proposal analysis, grants tracking, governance, deep dives, etc. And that's where the next phase of not just BlockWorks, but I think media is going to go. I find that a lot of founders, they often have a North Star. They're building their business. It's in the earlier stages. And they're trying to look at traditional companies who maybe did this 20, 30, 40 years ago to see the playbooks, to see how they went from one product or service to another. To the extent you guys are willing to share, and maybe if competitors are listening, you may not want to say this, but is there a company you look to and say, hey, we want to be a little like them? or maybe take some of the playbooks they've used and apply them here? The answer with a big asterisk attached to it is we look at Bloomberg a lot as a model that is great and makes a lot of sense. And when I say Bloomberg, I mean the media top of funnel with a product that sits at the base of that funnel. We take a lot of inspiration from that. That being said, I think Bloomberg is one of these things that's kind of a white whale in that I think there are these business models that people often say. One that you hear a lot is, we're trying to build the Berkshire Hathaway of X. Or 
the Bloomberg of crypto is another one of those things. And when I say white whale, I just think it's this very seductive idea that draws a lot of people in that ultimately isn't really possible or doesn't have a very high chance of success. How many times have we heard the Berkshire Hathaway of X and it never really gets built? Why not? Because there's some magical combination of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and they figured out the dynamics of buying up float, which they can use as leverage for the investing part of their business that I don't know, no one has really been able to replicate. I believe that's the same thing for the Bloomberg of crypto. I don't know why, but just gut intuition tells me no one's ever really going to build what Michael Bloomberg built again. Maybe it's because when he was aggregating all of those sources of data to put behind the terminal, people didn't understand how valuable the data was and what he was really doing. And they probably didn't really believe in his vision. Now everyone looks at that business and says, you have one of the best businesses on earth. And I think people would be not as willing to basically sell that or license that data, however that ultimately ends up working. But I think that the structure of the media top of funnel into the product enterprise research thing at the bottom, we look at a lot. In terms of North Stars, I think there are different businesses that we take inspiration from different products we sort of look at. That's the right way to look at it. Is each line item has different North Stars. I don't look at BlockWorks as building the Bloomberg for crypto. I'm like, oh, our research business model could look something similar to like a Politico Pro or a Bloomberg. By the way, Bloomberg is one of the best software businesses in the history of the world. That's like saying you want to go build an Apple <laughs> or like a Google. I'm sure you do. Okay. <laughs> so I think for the newsletter business, we look at Axios and Morning Brew. They built these really successful businesses on the back of newsletters. For podcasts, we look at Gimlet and what they did. We look at Wondery. We look at what Barstool has done. And there are pros and cons of all these businesses. And we try to pick out the best things for each product line, I'd say. Conferences, we look at Web Summit and Money 2020 and those kind of businesses. There are a lot they got right. And there are even more things they got wrong. So how can you basically study entrepreneurs of the past and businesses of the past to try to cherry pick the best things? And I think that's what most successful companies do, by the way. It's really rare to be like, no, oh, I'm going to pick this business model from 20 years ago and just copy it in my industry. It doesn't really work like that, I don't think. I could not agree more with that. Putting my VC hat on for a second, you see a lot of early stage founders, particularly first time founders saying, I am building, to your point, the Berkshire of crypto or the Facebook of crypto or the Google of crypto and insert big company of crypto. And it's basically almost always a negative signal. So I think sophisticated VCs, because to your point, there's a lot of prerequisites that are needed to build these businesses that are often unknown to founders. So all they see is a sprawling media and data empire of Bloomberg. All they see is Apple launching all these products, but they didn't really study all the prerequisites, all the individuals, the market structure of 30 years ago, the vendors, the competitors, they don't see that stuff. And a lot of that stuff is what determines the outcome of the playbook. It is possible, by the way, I think for founders to really deep dive in these things, but it takes a long time. So it's probably better for most just to get the contours, to see what the high level playbook is for a particular maybe product rollout or a branding exercise and just steal that instead of taking the whole company idea and copy pasting it. Exactly. I agree with that. And don't be afraid to iterate. I think one of the great strengths of successful founders, and hopefully Jason, you and I do this more rightly than we do wrongly, but there's a fine line to walk in between sticking with something and having conviction that it's going to work versus understanding when it's not working and pivoting. And there's no real science. You just have to have a feel 
And we've had different product lines over the past that we've abandoned for reasons X, Y, and Z. But we've also had things that didn't work for a period of time, but we had faith that it would work and we stuck with it. And I don't know, hopefully you get those decisions more right than wrong. But I think finding that balance of where to iterate versus when to stick with it, that's a tough one that takes some time to develop. When you look at Bloomberg's business and just successful companies in general, they typically start with an incredibly niche idea. And I think that's sometimes what Mike and I see founders doing poorly in crypto when they raise so much money. And that's what happens when you raise so much money. You think that you can take on the world. Bloomberg just started with bonds. Mike Bloomberg, I think he was a bond trader. He worked on the bond desk or something at Solomon Brothers. Their early history was they were just the best platform to get information on bonds. And so for BlockWorks, we started just with institutional capital markets people who are looking to get into crypto. Very niche, I would say. That's advice for other founders who are coming in is how can you get five really, really, really good customers and go from there? Not to say that we have all the answers on any of this stuff. And I'll just caveat this by saying a lot of this is based on Jason and my own experience. There are businesses where it makes sense to raise a lot of money or have different approaches. But I do tend to agree with that, that niche is better, at least in the beginning. Moving on a little bit into another area, I think, yeah, a lot of founders they might be technical and building a product or really good at some specific thing, but very few of them have experience or the background to like engage with media and leverage it to help make the company successful and to tell a good story. So I think there's many different strategies and ways to do it. But broadly speaking, how do you work with founders? What do you tell them about how they should think about crypto media broadly and leveraging its power? I have two thoughts on this. And one is a little bit more specific to crypto, but the other is maybe advice for founders about how to approach media in any industry. I think this would broadly make sense is to almost think of it a little bit like you're trying to make a big sale for your company. So what are the different process and steps that you would lay out for trying to land a big sale? Well, first, you want to try to identify what is the target stakeholder? at the company that you're trying to sell into. Then you would try to get a sense of how long is this going to take? If you're going in to make a big sale, you don't want to just say, hey, buy my product on day one. You want to take a little bit of time, build a relationship, do all the sorts of salesy things, try to demonstrate value, all that stuff. I think that's similar to how you might approach trying to get coverage in media. So you'd want to figure out at most crypto media organizations, most reporters aren't generalists anymore. So if you're operating in DeFi, there's likely someone who's covering your beat in DeFi. It probably makes sense to try to get to know that reporter. If you see in your future, at some point in time, coverage is going to be important to me, then reporters are always looking for sources. They're constantly trying to understand their beat better and build relationships with people who are experts who can help make sure that they're getting their coverage right. If you have the time, and honestly, it could just be one 15 or 20 minute phone call every other week. It doesn't have to be an enormous amount of time. Get to know them, get on their radar. And depending on how important you think coverage is to you, I would also say, be strategic about which PR firms you employ. It's tempting to say, I don't want to deal with this. This is annoying. I don't want to be self-promoting. I'm going to hire XYZ cookie cutter firm and pay them $15,000 a month and they're trying to get me placements. What that looks like on the back end, being in media, is you're just getting spammed with enormous paragraph-length emails from 
low-level associates at PR firms about stuff that isn't topical. What reporters are generally trying to do is say, hey, what's the news out there? What are narratives and themes that people are interested in and try to do good reporting on those things that people care about? So getting these gigantic paragraphs from random PR associates has a very, very low success rate. There are a couple firms that do it well in crypto, I think. And also sometimes one-person shops are almost the best thing that you can do. Find someone who did work at a PR firm and then left with a couple of select clients, but they have good relationships and that might even cost more, but I think you kind of get what you pay for. So it's those three things. Think of it like a sale, identify your stakeholder, build a relationship with them and be very thoughtful about how you use and manage PR. Maybe for listeners, guys, in my experience, a lot of founders, people give them this advice. They're like, speak to a PR firm, but they don't actually know what PR firms are and what they do. Can you guys walk us through? And I know this is really basic. What the hell are PR firms and what do they do? PR firms basically, it's right in the name. They want to handle your public relations. And ultimately, what they promise founders is we're going to get you appearances on outlet XYZ. So maybe it's really important for you to appear in Forbes or the New York Times or something like that. Or maybe you just want to consistently be quoted in more local press publications or whatever. It depends a little bit on what you want, but it's anything from building up your profile as a thought leader to actual deliverables with, I want to be covered for things X, Y, and Z. But generally, it stems from this desire to, hey, we have all this really cool stuff that we're building. I just wish we could get more eyeballs on it. And then PR firms swoop in and sell into that need, I would say. I would zoom out. PR firms don't just handle, hey, we're going to get you placement in a media organization. I think that's usually what founders want. Hey, I just want to get a placement in the Wall Street Journal or something. I'm going to talk to the good PR firms here, which are few and far between, but there are some. I know a lot of companies in crypto whose PR firm handles all of their digital and social. They handle all their media relations. They handle their messaging, what's going on the website and stuff like that. They do like crisis comms. They do a lot of advisory. They handle like content. You need written content on your blog and stuff like that. So I think oftentimes PR firms do a lot of that. The number one thing usually that a founder wants is to get a placement in a media publication. And usually it's around some event. We're raising money and we want to announce this or we're launching a new product and we want to announce this. And for those events, my experience is that like Mike is saying, it's the wrong strategy to just be like, oh, great, we're going to go hire a PR firm and they're going to get us placement. Because what that ends up with is 100 different emails in our inbox and none of them are really tailored. It's like outsourcing your sales in my mind. If you're trying to make a sale, like Mike was saying, you would never go hire some outside firm to go blast every single potential customer. You would do really thoughtful outreach and you'd get warm intros and you would get on calls with people and you'd do like exploratory calls. You wouldn't just send someone a pitch, which is weird because that's what PR usually does. So, I've seen founders and companies in general make a lot of mistakes here where they assume that the PR firm knows who their customers are and maybe the PR firm will get them a quote or a piece in Forbes. When their actual customers, they don't read Forbes. And Forbes is a negative signal because they think not very well of that brand and the publication. And you see a lot of this stuff where the PR firm gets them that placement, but it actually hurts the brand and shoots them in the foot. One additional question. Are there any companies or maybe people today in crypto that you think do a particularly good job of PR and engaging with the media? I think it depends who your customer is. To your question and to Larry's point around 
you have to think about who you're trying to reach. There's this company, TRM Labs. Oh, actually, I think they just came on your podcast. I'm trying to remember if they did. But anyways, TRM is this great like compliance platform. They're not trying to reach a million people. They're not trying to get a placement in some media outlet with a million people who are going to read it. They are really thoughtfully usually giving data or giving quotes to places where their 10 key stakeholders at potential clients might read it. So I think that's the first thing is you have to be thoughtful about what the point of your PR is going to be. Are you trying to reach investors who are going to invest in your new round? Are you trying to reach potential users? Is it B2B? Is it B2C? So I think the folks that do it well are the people who actually understand that. I don't know, Uniswap did a pretty good job back in DeFi summer. They got mainstream placement. I forget if it was like Wall Street Journal or New York Times that really put them on the map when they were doing more volume than Coinbase. And they were really the only protocol or the only DAO that was able to broach the mainstream, the non-crypto crowd. And they did a really thoughtful job with PR. I actually think a lot of companies don't do a great job and that it's a huge opportunity for them. Mike, I don't know if you'd have something to add there. I agree with you. I think there's probably an enormous opportunity for especially more crypto natives to be a little bit more savvy about media and PR. I think if you were to actually pull mainstream society about what brand associations they have with crypto, it would probably be something like, we know Coinbase, we know that exists. I know there's some guy named SBF and FTX that just blew up and maybe he was a scammer or maybe he was a misguided kid, which I don't love. And then there's some guy, CZ. There are very few figures in crypto who have crossed the chasm successfully into mainstream. And I think that's awesome. It's a huge area of opportunity. I think something has to change. There's opportunities for DAOs, I think, to improve the way that they brand themselves in crypto internally. I struggle a little bit. I'm not 100% sure what it is. I think a lot of it comes down to, frankly, Derek and Larry, I'd be curious. You guys are sort of at the forefront, I think, of helping DAOs and are very boots on the ground and familiar with how they operate. But I think one of the things that DAOs are trying to do right now is recruit more specialized labor. So maybe a concrete example of that would be DAO treasury management. What is the right tooling suite that we need to manage that? But also, how can we get some people in here with a financial background to help us manage that with a specific goal in mind? And I think probably there's something to be said there for some combination of media and PR. There's a different bucket that almost should exist in companies that doesn't really exist today, which is marketing versus content. I think in the future, more companies will have a content function as opposed to a marketing function. The difference being, and something that I see a lot actually happen in crypto specifically, is marketing is you're trying to push a specific message, whereas content, you are putting ideas out there and having people come to you. Maybe you could argue good marketing should be the latter, but I think it's different. So one thing that Jason and I see a lot of the times is companies will be like, I want to have a company podcast and who owns it internally, the marketing function. And the marketing function says, great, here are my value propositions from why my customers use XYZ Exchange. Make sure in the podcast you are pushing these messages. And that's just not how good content works. Content is you get an understanding of what's the zeitgeist out there. What do people want to consume in terms of information? Put it out there. And then you have to trust that by virtue of you putting good content out there that people are engaging with, that rubs off on your brand. Now, you probably shouldn't put anything out there. 
you want to be conscious of brand. Don't put stuff out there that's totally off brand and people are going to be confused. But I think there's an opportunity basically for DAOs to leverage content a little bit more effectively and bring in some people with domain expertise there. For anyone listening that may want to dive more into this, there's a guy, I forget how I came across him. Oh, I was reading the Steve Jobs biography and there's this guy who was helping. He was Steve's PR coach. His name is Regis McKenna. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And there's a book called The Regis Touch. It's really good for technology marketing in particular. So if anyone wants to dive a little bit more into the weeds there, highly recommend the book. It's on Amazon, The Regis Touch. Good suggestion, Larry. Great book. There's this Regis quote. He's like, the best marketing is education. I think that's what the best PR people do too. By the way, as you listen to that Regis quote, we are much more likely to cover something if you are helping us understand something about the market instead of just pitching your product. That's just one piece of advice, I'd say. One thing that Jason, you and I go back and forth on sometimes, and frankly, I'm not 100% sure if this is really necessary, but a lot of founders sometimes are curious about, do I need to do a lot of speaking opportunities? Do I need to get a face out there that's associated with the brand of my company? And I think you can point to examples where that's not necessarily the case. And some of this is dependent on a business model. If you sell into the public sector, like government agencies and that sort of thing, or you're only selling into banks and you have a couple of really big customers that you're trying to land, then Larry, to your point, actually going on a whole bunch of podcasts could almost weirdly be detrimental to that, I think. But if you have a product that's more consumer facing, it doesn't necessarily need to be the founder. But definitely having at least one human face that's associated with that brand is very helpful. And even if you look at some of the biggest, most iconic tech companies of all time, not just necessarily within crypto, many of them have either an iconic founder or a face behind that brand. So even just go look at the list of top 10 companies in the S&P 500, and you'll see that it applies to about half of them. And that could be anyone from Apple to Steve Jobs, even later Tim Cook, who's, I wouldn't call him maybe a celebrity CEO, but there's a face that's associated with that brand. Then to Tesla, to Amazon, to Google, the list goes on and on. I want to be careful here because Jason and I are in media and there's a possibility that we overweight it. I really do believe, especially now, people follow people more than brands. It does make sense, I think, for most companies in crypto to be at least thinking about that in the back of their minds. I completely agree with Mike. In a world where everything is about technology and we're talking about chat GBT and it's all about the new protocol, personal interaction is more important than ever. And people want to hear from people. They don't want to hear from brands, like Mike said. I think if you're building a B2C company, you need some personal brand in crypto or nothing's a need. It's really helpful to have. On the SPF side, from the outside and from watching SPF over the past two, three years, he did a honestly a really good job with his building his personal brands, getting his message out there, both with traditional and crypto media. I think in the last month, crypto media has obviously turned on him. Traditional media has stuck with him. Just curious what your off-the-cuff thoughts are about his approach to media overall. I think SBF did an extremely good job. I think he had a, if not explicit understanding of how media works, definitely a very good implicit understanding of how media works, similar to Trump. I never bought into this idea that Trump had some master plan and he was an evil genius. 
I don't think that's true at all. But what I do think he had was this very innate, natural sense of how media works and ticks, but also what to say to people. One of the connections between Trump and SBF as well is, I don't mean to get political at all, I'm just trying to draw a connection between two sets of people that I see some similarities. He kind of had a good sense of burying a truth or something that seems honest in a bunch of other statements of non-truths that legitimized the whole bulk of what he was saying. So like, I'll give you an example. At the New York Times Dealbook Summit, I thought something that was very strategic that he did was he admitted, because it was already out there in the open, that he didn't really believe in ESG and there were a lot of problems with that and it wasn't really doing much good. And I thought that was a very tactical surrender because I think most of the people who are in that room, what they care about is minimizing environmental impacts and making sure business is more sustainable writ large. But I think most people in their heart of hearts look at the current state of ESG and say, this isn't particularly well set up. I thought admitting that, it makes people say, oh, he's being honest. So I think he's a very good tactical explainer of things. And he really gets how the media works and operates. And look, I'd love to sit here and say, we saw through SBF the entire time. And that just wouldn't be an honest thing. I think he was very convincing in creating this persona. And unfortunately, you see some people that are very savvy with the media and they use it as a way of bootstrapping their company and creating a better product and serving a whole bunch of people. Unfortunately, it sometimes works the opposite. And people that have a really intuitive, good sense of media use that for evil ends. He's sort of the Sith Lord. He's the dark side of the force. I don't know. It's funny to hear you bring up the Star Wars reference. Internally, we have like a phrase, you can use magic for good and then for bad, which is dark arts. And I don't really have fully formed thoughts on this, but I feel like a lot of really smart founders, they learn that magic and absolute power corrupts absolutely, where they can't help but use it in evil ways and maybe in ways where they can manipulate people because they see that this magic does work and it is so effective. And I feel like with media, most people see this most commonly where people get really good at the media circuit. They know how to play the media and they do this in ways that are clearly manipulative, but they almost can't help themselves. I'm not sure if you guys have thought about this before. I've thought a lot about it. I'm not a subscriber to this idea. I think it's very in vogue right now to say the media sucks and there's this Twitter hive mind that's replacing the media and citizen journalism and all this stuff. I'll go on the record and say, I don't really believe in that. I see the purpose of having good media. And I actually do think sometimes what happens on Twitter is a good check on media sometimes, especially mainstream media. But I don't think it's a good replacement because sometimes I'm watching these Twitter accounts that supposedly they have a lot of followers and they get a bunch of retweets and they're putting information out there that's wrong or not sourced correctly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these are like basic things that are being missed on. I do believe in media overall. The fatal flaw of media is that the market for nuance is two orders of magnitude smaller than the audience or the market size of hype and narrative. That's the problem. As a media entity or operator, you have to be very conscious of how your business model works, which is you got to build an audience and you got to find a way to monetize it. Those people that you were alluding to, Larry, the people that understand how that works, I don't have a great solution for how to check them because at the end of the day, 
people want to consume their information. I got to be honest, one thing I've been a little disappointed on is watching some of these attempted redemption arcs in our industry, because nobody wants to get in the ring and call people out and say things that feel nasty or whatever. But at the same time, the check on this has to be that people have to decide that they don't want to hear this information from this people. Media is a mirror in many respects of ultimately what people want. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, unfortunately, there's responsibility for media operators out there to not just let grifters get on their stage. But I'm not sure how much you could have filtered out. I'm not sure what filtering process would have kept SBF off of panels and things like that. I think, unfortunately, those people who like to take advantage of other people are always probably going to slip through most nets. That's my depressing conclusion to that. Yeah, I think in response to that, Mike, from my perspective, media has a uniquely important and influential role. I think one mental model for public blockchains is a religion. It's not about just the technology. Anyone can fork smart contracts and create another chain. It's about the community and the ecosystem that really helps you create a moat and network effects. Satoshi today is looked at as a biblical type figure in Bitcoin and crypto broadly. There's many other examples. And especially for L1 ecosystems, having a strong present founder and a compelling story is a huge part of the equation. So I also don't know the answer or the right way to structure the incentives, but it's uniquely important in crypto. I'm very optimistic that it gets better. I just think that this is what happens in industries where A, crypto moves faster than any industry in the world, and B, there's so much money flowing around. Like even the internet, which got created pretty quickly from 95 till 2005, obviously the dot-com bust, it moved really, really quickly, but there wasn't so much capital at work. There wasn't money inside of these companies like there is today. So I think because of that, crypto has this large attack vector from these people the Doquans and Mashinskis and Sues and Kyles and SBFs of the world. But I think that ends up ultimately getting improved by better diligence, better media, better people who are open and understanding that they should speak out against some of these things. There are definitely people who knew maybe not what was going on at FTX, but some of these other places and maybe just didn't speak out because they didn't want to create enemies in the industry. And I think all that gets improved. I'm optimistic on it. I'm optimistic on it too. I just understand why it happens, I think. Jason, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I think another interesting period of time to look at to find an analogy to crypto today is if you look at almost the Gilded Age, the robber baron era of America and American business, I think that's a pretty interesting analogy to use for today's time frame. And I think, Larry, we've actually talked about this before, but the story of John Rockefeller is quite an interesting one on a whole bunch of different dimensions for crypto specifically, because one, he was trying to get his arms around this industry, which was extremely volatile and had all these booms and busts, which was the oil and gas industry at the time. But also because he was dealing with these regulatory hurdles. At the time that he was building Standard Oil, or what would eventually become Standard Oil, it was actually illegal to do commerce in multiple different states in the US. And they got around it with this pretty unique at the time, trust structure. And he indirectly created this idea of, he borrowed this idea of joint stock to actually sell equity. And he was the one who pioneered this idea of thinking about creating your wealth in equity, not just the 
cash flows or other capital that you can take out of the business. But that period of time of everything being very uncertain and very boom busty and prone to massive consolidation and all this crazy stuff, it's pretty interesting to go back and look at that period of time. I have to ask at least one governance specific question. I've noticed, and again, we've talked about this, you guys have spent a lot more time, I think, digging into protocol governance. I've even seen you become an active maker delegate and get really, really into the weeds. I just wanted to ask, what's the motivation? Why are you guys spending so many cycles digging into protocol governance? I have a very high level thought. And then Jason, maybe as our delegate here, can get into the weeds a little bit more. If I could draw an analogy back to 2018, 2019, there's a lot of stuff that was pretty uncertain during that period of time. But if you just looked at where capital was flowing to, what projects are getting funded, and where the intellectual capital was moving to, who were the smartest people that I respected a lot in the space, what were they doing? It was clear that a lot of the companies that were going to be successful, put a little asterisk around that because a lot of them have frankly blown up right now. But a lot of attention in capital is going towards this layer of CFI infrastructure. And I don't think that's going to be the case this time. I do think CFI infrastructure will get rebuilt and we'll make the same mistakes that we made this cycle, etc. But a lot of the smartest people that Jason and I know in this space are migrating towards working with and contributing to DAOs. And what's interesting about that, so at the same time we're recording this, Jason and I are recording our own podcast called Bell Curve, which you guys were on. And there are a lot of problems, frankly, with how DAOs operate today and governance. And when we see these two things happen simultaneously, where a lot of the funding and a lot of really intelligent people are also going towards something that's very new that there are a lot of problems with, you can't help but see an enormous amount of opportunity there. If you are trying to design products for that group of people, you have from someone who's trying to create products a really pretty interesting opportunity, which is very greenfield. You're not trying to be the nth research or data provider to someone in financial services who already has this whole stack built for them. DAOs are structurally different from companies. The way they make decisions is different from companies. The tools that they have around decision-making are different for companies. So they need all these different things. And there isn't an enormous suite of products to serve them. So that's why we are super, super in. And governance is the most formational part of that because it's just like, how do you make decisions? And what is the overall structure for decision-making in your organization? So I think that's why we're interested in it. The reason that we're building a product that will help investors understand what's happening in governance is because right now there's no single thing that has the greatest gap between what is understood and what moves companies and organizations in the markets than governance. And I think that what we're building with BlockWorks Research will help at least hopefully close that gap between what's actually happening inside these protocols and what actually gets built and help investors understand that. That's why we're building that. I think there's a big gap in the market. And then I think it was Derek who asked this about Maker. Even though we're like in the depths of a bear market, I have really strong conviction that DeFi will grow exponentially in the coming decades. And I think that Maker has a unique opportunity to become maybe one of the backbones of DeFi. And if that happens, then I think Maker could become one of the most impactful initiatives in the history of global finance, which is this crazy opportunity. But also, I think to achieve that scale, Maker needs a much better growth strategy, improved governance, more scalable operations. If I can move the scale by even 0.0001%, then I think that's pretty exciting. 
I think overall, it's great to see you guys lean in. And from my perspective, communication is really the main, I would say, different dynamic in a DAO that's operating publicly compared to a normal business. And there's a lot more transparent communication. It's both a strength and a weakness. As a result, going back to some of the earlier thoughts about why DAO struggle with messaging, there's no single person or team for a DAO that can create a unified vision or unified marketing or comm strategy, or at least not in the theoretical DAO. I think practically, you look at something like Constitution DAO, there's many, many people speaking for it, donating for it. It wasn't clear who the leader was. And I think it's the same for Beta DAO. If you're negotiating against the DAO, it's like, who are you actually negotiating against? Who's the spokesman who has the influence? Like, it's just really unclear. So I think as a whole, there's a lot of room for improvement in how DAOs communicate, negotiate, and how they allocate authority. Agree with all that. Awesome. Guys, it's been really good having you on. Super compelling to hear the early blocks work story and how you guys have pivoted and grown throughout the years. And also just really helpful to hear your thoughts on crypto media broadly and where the space is going. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. This is one of our favorite podcasts. So honored to be on. Thanks, like Mike said, but also congrats on everything at Reverie. I mean, we take a lot of inspiration from you guys on the governance side and what you guys have done and the impact you guys have had. So yeah, really exciting. Yeah, 100%.